G'day, and welcome to the Pack Heavy Podcast. My name is Hayden Thompson, and today's conversation is episode 120 with Mitch Cobb, who is the co-founder and CEO of Libra Non-Alcoholic Beer. Now, I really enjoyed going back through today's conversation when I was editing the episode. Mitch and I discussed a lot, and we hit on some pretty thought-provoking questions, and one in particular was, uh, what are the fundamental differences between being an entrepreneur versus considering oneself a business person? And the other one that really gets to me and that I like to have a chat about um, is why the skill of selling is often overlooked in a formal education setting. So all in all, I've learned a ton from Mitch. He seems like a very measured guy, and I think the success that Libra is seeing is definitely testament to that. And I should also mention that Mitch and the team have also generously given you all a one-time 10% discount at the checkout when you use the promo code LIBRA10. Now, before we dive into today's conversation with Mitch, as always, I'd like to take a quick moment to introduce myself uh, to those of you who are new to the show. Um, my name is Hayden Thompson, and in addition to hosting this podcast and chatting with business owners and operators like I have today with Mitch, I also work for a company called Foodpack, which is a packaging company based in BC, Canada. Now, at Foodpack, we specialize in three key areas, the first one being stock bags and custom printed bags and films, and the other one is packaging equipment like Cipramac vacuum chamber machines, Plexpack band sealers, and repack tray sealers and thermoformers. So if you're in need of a packaging solution for your food product or would like me to evaluate your existing packaging program and equipment line, definitely visit the Foodpack website um, by scrolling down into the show notes below. You can learn a little bit more about our offering and then you can reach out to me directly at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. All right, let's get stuck into it. I hope you all enjoy episode 120 with Mitch Cobb. Mitch, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Aiden. Mate, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I had Natasha reach out to me uh, a few weeks ago and obviously introduce us. And then I met you at the trade show briefly and tasted your beers. So thank you very much. It was all delicious. <laughs> awesome. Great to hear. Yeah. So how are things? You're based in PEI. I am. I'm based in PEI. I uh, live in Charlottetown. And uh, yeah, things are going really great. Born and raised? Born and raised. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up here and then moved away for a few years uh, to go to university and to do some traveling. And then uh, I guess I moved back in probably uh, 2004 and, okay. and, you know, have been here pretty much ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Like most people that come from a small country town or a smaller city, uh, it's a great place to get away from, but people always tend to gravitate back home. Is that what you found as well? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, I think I don't know. There's something about growing up on an island, you know, that, mm. uh, you know, there's a real strong sense of community and, and, you know, people always seem to gravitate away for a few, few years and then, uh, yeah. and then find their way back. Dude, yeah. it's, it's a common story. I grew up in a town. I think there's probably, I moved away 2007. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was 2003. I moved down to Melbourne from the country town that I grew up in Bendigo where mum and dad and my family still are. And there's probably 125 150,000 population. So not small, but not big either. And uh, I always love getting back home. And obviously I'm here in Canada, so it doesn't happen very frequently anymore, but it's always nice to go back home and yeah, sit down in mum and dad's backyard. It's a great place to grow up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things you realize too, right? Because growing up here, your, your frame of reference, I guess, is small. And then you mm -hmm. go away and you see the world and you realize what a beautiful place you, that's it. you come from. And uh, yeah, now you get back here and just appreciate it so much more. Mate, and from what I understand, like the food quality and the produce and, you know, the standard of living in PEI is pretty high when it comes to like what you've got available at your fingertips. Is that is that true and accurate? Yeah, I would definitely say that that's uh, true and, and accurate. We've got a, a fantastic food scene here and a really mm. great uh, 
culture scene, a lot of arts and, and, and music, I'd say, you know, because PEI is such a tourist destination, we really kind of hit above our weight uh, in terms of the amenities that we have here. So, um, mm. yeah, so it's, it's great. It would have made a huge difference when they built that bridge and really opened the place up. I can imagine that's when tourism really took off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, prior to that, you know, taking a ferry back and forth, I remember growing up and you'd have to mm. like, you know, get up at five 30 in the morning to catch the first ferry across. Otherwise yep. you'd have to wait for hours on end. And yeah, so yep. it's, it's definitely made it uh, more accessible for tourists and, yeah. and also more accessible for us to, to get yeah. away. That's it. Like um, over here, we've got the Gulf Islands, which I'm sure. Have you been over west? Have you been out this way yet? I, I have been, yeah. And I like onto the, the island. Islands. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. So you've obviously got Vancouver Island and Salt Spring and Pender and all of those amazing islands. But yeah, they their lives revolve around ferry schedules. You know, if totally. they have to get anywhere or the float plane, which is really convenient. I um prior to working at Food Pack, where I am now, a lot of people that listen to the podcast know this, but I was the food service sales manager at Salt Spring Coffee. So I was really fortunate enough to be flying across because I was overseeing the cafe that they were operating on the island. Uh, if it wasn't weekly, it was bi-weekly and, uh, yeah, an amazing flight, but yeah, those float planes are incredible. Like you, the access that you can have to pretty secluded places is pretty cool. And, um, yeah, it's like a 20 minute flight compared to like a, like a four hour round trip on the ferries. Right. You know what? I've never been on a float plane. Dude, yeah, I recommend it. It's pretty cool. Like they're old beavers, and like these are bush planes, so they've got their beavers and they've got the otters. Or the De Havilland is the um, is the company that used to produce them. They don't make them anymore, but they they maintain them really well over here. And uh, yeah, they're awesome. And the pilots are really cool too. They fly quite low under the weather. Like uh, everything's line of sight, and yeah, the the it's such a picturesque landscape. Like it's something that I'll never forget. Oh, beautiful! I'll definitely yeah. have to uh, try it out someday. Yeah, for sure. Um, mate, so you grew up on PEI and then you went across to the mainland for university. What did you study? Huh. Interestingly, um, I studied anthropology and international development studies. Anthropology? What is that all about? Yeah. You know, I mean, anthropology is basically the the study of different cultures. Cool. Um, you know, so I, I did that for my undergrad. And then I actually, uh, well, I spent a year traveling after I finished uh, my undergrad and yeah. then uh, moved to Australia and did my education degree. Really? Where'd you travel to in Australia? Um, I did my education degree at uh, Murdoch University in Perth. So okay. it's mainly on the, uh, on the West Coast. On the West Coast. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. I have never been to Perth before, but I've got family and friends that have been over there. And obviously, um, I've got a friend that lives there at the moment as well. And stunning. Like the beaches are meant to be incredible. Oh, it was it was beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And spent a lot of time down in like Margaret River and traveling up and down the West Coast. And yeah. Did my uh, teaching practice in Exmouth. Okay. I guess northwest corner there. Yeah. yeah. Did you get down to Frio? I well, yeah. Fremantle. The, univer the university was in Fremantle. Oh right, I didn't realize that. Oh awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, apparently Fremantle's the place to be. Like everybody yeah. that speaks about Fremantle just absolutely loves it. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, I would say the the cultural center of Perth. Like Perth seems to be a, like a much newer city, but Fremantle's yeah. definitely got some like older kind of grit culture to it. Cool. That's cool, mate. So you studied there and then when did you get back to Canada? So I got back, I got back in 2004 and, okay. you know, uh, kind of started my career, I guess. And, and, you know, back when I was in my twenties and after doing my degree in anthropology and international development and then studying education, my, my focus was really around community development and education. So I spent, mm -hmm. you know, the next probably five or six years working more in the nonprofit and community sector. Mm. Was that fulfilling? Did you enjoy it? 
It was, it was awesome. Yeah. It was exactly what I wanted to do. And, you know, at, at that stage, I really, you know, entrepreneurship really wasn't on my radar at all. You know, yeah. I, I was really focused on community development. And, and at that time, you know, I sort of felt to me like, you know, business and community were, were on opposite ends of the spectrum and business yeah. was sort of, you know, the evil end of the spectrum and, you know, community development, nonprofit work was, was more on the, on the, on the positive end of the cycle, uh, on end of the spectrum, so to speak. So, yeah. And what was it that sort of uh, turned that paradigm on its head in your mind? Like, was there a specific incident that occurred or, you know, did you meet somebody that sort of like gave you a further insight into sort of how our business can work for good? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a bit of a long uh, story, but I guess, you know, after working in the in the community sector for a number of years, I kind of realized that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of upward mobility. Um, and so I spent a year in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, um, kind of traveling around. And, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do um, with my life. And, and it was there that I kind of got the entrepreneurship bug. You know, and I, I remember very, you know, distinctly, I was in Bali and, you know, you you get into a cab and they'd ask you, oh, are you here for business or are you here for pleasure? And after a while, I just started saying, oh, I'm here for business just to see what people would say. And, mm. you know, as I kind of went along, I kind of realized that, like, you know, everyone, you know, was kind of working for themselves and had their own side hustle and, you know, whether they were expats or or locals. And, you know, that really got me thinking along the lines of like, what, what could I be doing for myself? And, uh, you know, so when I came back from that trip, I actually started my first business, which was, um, um, an international student recruiting company, uh, right. because I had been working prior to going in immigrant services. Um, you know, and so I did that for a couple of years, um, and then went back to school to do my MBA. And, and that was really where, you know, the, the light bulb moment, I think went off where, mm. You know, while doing my MBA, I started learning about B Corps and social enterprise and all of these companies like Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's that, mm. you know, are really combining profit and purpose. And it was that realization that like, you know, business and, and community don't necessarily need to exist at ups and ends of the spectrum that, mm. you know, you can, you can do both. You can have a profitable business and, you know, contribute back to the community. And, and so, you know, that kind of stuck at the bottom of my mind. Um, you know, as I finished up my MBA and then I was teaching for a bit at our local community college, but still really wanted to, um, uh, to be an entrepreneur, you know, I kind of felt like I had a great job. I loved teaching. Um, but I, I guess I, you know, that, that entrepreneur bug was, was still there. And so, you know, when the opportunity to open up Upstreet uh, came up, uh, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to, you know, really lean into the community aspect and build a really community centric business. That's cool. If you see a word entrepreneur a lot of times, and, um, you know, the vast majority of the people that I have on this show would consider themselves entrepreneurs as well. But I always see the word entrepreneur. Well, I'd love your definition of the word entrepreneur, because like, there's an entrepreneur and there's business, right? And they're basically the same thing. But how do you define entrepreneur? Or how would you suggest that you're an, a, an entrepreneur versus like a business owner and operator? Or are they the same thing? Oh, geez, that's a <laughs> That's a really good question, you know, and yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I almost see, um, like, I feel like everyone today needs to be an entrepreneur, 
mm. you know, and, and to me, entrepreneurship is really more of a mindset mm. than it is a, a profession, you know, okay. and, and it's, you know, seeing a problem and, and seeking a solution, uh, you know, being creative and, and, you know, finding, um, like you know, a product yeah, really, market fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, you, and that doesn't matter. Like even, you know, I mean, I used to teach actually an entrepreneurship class at, uh, at Holland college. And, and I, you know, a lot of the students would be like, well, I never want to own my own business. Why do I need to take this class? And for me, it was like, you know, it doesn't matter if you want to open your own business or not. You know, if you want to go work in government or you want to manage a project or you want to go work for another company, mm. you need to be entrepreneurial. You need mm -hmm. to have the skills. You need to be able to take the initiative. You need to be able to manage a project and find creative solutions. And, yep. you know, it doesn't matter where you're working. Um, and for me, that's really what entrepreneurship is. You know, it's, it's, it's more of a mindset. I agree. I couldn't agree more with you, but I see like on LinkedIn, especially like the volume of people that are calling themselves entrepreneurs, but, and I, I never, I actually say anything, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, are you actually an entrepreneur? Like are you out there looking for a solution and trying to solve a problem here and actively like, you know, seeking a product market fit or are you just operating your business? Cause I think that's two very, very different things. And a lot of business owners and operators don't consider themselves an entrepreneur either. They're just like, I'm doing business. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but the totally. one piece of the puzzle you said before, like, you know, um, you had some students, you know, that were questioning why they would need to be learning entrepreneurship. And I'd suggest that like, you know, understanding and learning the sales cycle and a sales process is equally as important because, you know, if you don't have sales, like if you don't have the ability to sell, whether it's an idea or it doesn't necessarily even have to be a product or a service, it's just an idea or, you know, the ability to communicate something clearly and, you know, sell your intent. Um, I think that that's a really important life skill too. And, um, you know, I did my um, master's in entrepreneurship and innovation at university, and there wasn't one component of sales or a sales unit in that course. And I'm like, it, it should have been central to the whole theme, in my opinion. I was just going to say that, mm -hmm. you know, that is like one of the most under um, underutilized, under mm -hmm. misunderstood uh, professions, skill sets, mm -hmm. um, out there, you yep. know, there, there are very, very, very few, um, sales courses. They don't exist in, mm -hmm. in universities. They don't exist in colleges. It's really hard to find sales training. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is like one of the most important skill sets to have yep. in business. Yeah. Agree. A lot of people say it's, you know, is it art or is it like a science? Like which one is it like science? You can teach like a, something tangible like a process and i believe that uh, there is a sales process that can be taught and there are more and more people popping up online you know i get pitched all the time by people who are in sales that are selling their courses and uh so it is out there but i just wish it was wrapped up into a university course to some degree um so that it can be taught at that level because yeah like you know, we were taught how to pitch our ideas and, you know, look for funding and, you know, there were marketing and finance sort of units and all of those sort of critical pieces of the puzzle, which I'm sure were wrapped up in your MBA as well. But the one piece that was missing was sales. And I look back and I'm like, how, how is that missing? I, I just don't understand that how that fundamental sort of piece could be not included in the whole process. It baffles yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What percentage of your day would you suggest you're out there selling, you know, as a business owner and operator or an entrepreneur, you know, you've got to be out there, whether it's selling an idea to your employees or, you know, moving your business in a different direction or onboarding a new distributor, you're selling. So what's, what sort of percentage would you say you're out there selling every day? Hmm. 
Yeah, that's another good question. I mean, <clears throat> realistically, I, you know, I would say probably 80 to 90%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Between selling ideas to employees or, yeah. or you know, engaging them in, yep. in the culture or selling to a, you know, a, a new retailer or, yeah. you know, partnering with a new distributor. I mean, right now, you know, we're in the middle of doing uh, our first raise. So cool. All I'm doing is selling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? I don't get it. Anyway, yeah. mate, so Upstreet Craft Brewing, you uh, developed, oh, sorry, it was, yeah, was it Libra was 2020 or Upstreet was in 2020? Which came first? Yeah, so Upstreet Craft Brewing came first. So Upstreet started in in uh, 2015. Yep. Uh, myself and my business partner, Mike Hogan, started it. He was a, um, a home brewer. Okay. Uh, you know, and we used to go over to his place on Sundays and help him homebrew me and some friends. And, cool. you know, we just started talking about how cool it would be to open up our own craft brewery. And, yeah, you know, the conversations got a little bit more serious and a little bit more serious. And, uh, you know, after a while, we kind of reached a point where it was like, you know, we're, we're too far down the path to turn back. If we don't do it, you know, we're going to regret it. And so, um, you know, we started, we launched in June of 2015. Okay, cool. Was it what you thought it would be? Like from that initial sort of like idea of like, hey, we've got something here, like let's try and turn it into reality. You probably like had a back of the napkin sort of business model and plan compared to what it is today. Like what are the the major differences and sort of what challenges were you confronted with early on? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's like completely different than, yeah. in, you know, than, than what we thought it was going to be. I it's mean, funny how that happens, we, isn't it? <laughs> oh man. Um, when we first started talking about it, you know, we were talking about like, oh, we can do this little, you know, small brewery and do it on the weekends and keep our day jobs. And then yeah. it sort of scaled into a larger brewery. But, you know, um, I mean, we opened and it, and it grew uh, way faster than we thought it was, you know, than we had ever anticipated. And cool. it very quickly became, you know, the brewery, the tap room, you know, a couple of restaurants, um, you know it grew outside of PEI into more of a, of a, I would say a regional brewery in Atlantic Canada. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were, you know, what sort of challenges, I mean, there were challenges every day, you know, I can imagine. I think, yeah. You know, that was sort of, I think, you know, one of the things that helped us keep going is that we just, sort of accepted that we you know we didn't know what we were doing mm. um but we were willing to you know face every problem and, and find a solution and and keep going and i think that's really what has sort of made the difference for us is yeah you know not getting scared or turned away from from facing challenges yeah 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 i can imagine so you launched the business in 2015 and we're 23 now so that's what's that eight years Yep. You've been operating the business. So over that eight year period, and you look at where you are today to where you started, was it sort of the first 12 to 18 months that you found the most challenging or sort of the middle bracket or where you are now? Like what period of time? And I'm sure different challenges have presented themselves as you've scaled and grown the business, but sort of what component of the business growth would you consider to be the most challenging? Well, um, you know, I mean, like you said, I mean, there, there were different challenges all along the way, you know, yeah. I mean, those initial um, days when we first opened, like, you know, I, I remember just not knowing 
at all what what we were doing you know i mean yeah. there's that whole sort of like you know we're building the brewery we're building the brewery you know and, and we got close to the to the finish line and the first day we opened you know the 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 carpenters are still putting the the doors on the shelves behind the bar and people are still working and we open up you know we open up the bar and you know i mean there is you know only four of us at that time working and i'm bartending and you know at night and we're kegging beers during the day but that that first night you know we open up the bar and and we kind of look at each other and, and realize like we we don't have a float you know we had we had completely <laughs> not thought of like what happens when we open how do we run this place because we've yeah. just been so focused on like getting yeah. it open yeah you know and then like you know, we closed the bar at the end of the night. And no one knew how to do a cash, a cash out. out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, how do we reconcile this debit machine? Yeah, totally. You know, yeah. and, uh, yeah. so, you know, there were just a ton of, of those, those things, you know, and really yeah. long days, like kegging beer all day and delivering mm -hmm. it and then bartending at night and really very much involved, you know, and then that sort of transition to like learning how to manage a team. Mm know and how to build a team and and you know there was a lot of learning there yeah um you know and then how to you know you 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 sort of hit a point too where it's you know you're growing you're growing you're growing and, and now that we're eight year, years in you know the growth is slowing and so then it becomes a challenge how do we continue to innovate mm. and create new products to maintain the growth and you know we you sort of develop um these expectations, you know, or the community develops these expectations. So, you know, you're trying to keep up with those expectations and, you know, so there's, I mean, there, there have just been like a lot of interesting challenges along the way, both from like a strategic more, mm. you know, top perspective. And then just the, you know, the day-to-day -day challenges that you run into. Yeah. Yeah. Putting procedures in place would have been pretty important. I'd imagine. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, another thing as well, you know, that's pretty common um, on this podcast is the being okay with things not being perfect. Like, you know, you suggested like you built this bar and uh, even on day one, it still wasn't perfect and that's okay. You know, like nothing has to be polished and completely perfect before you open it up for the world to see. Is that sort of in your nature or are you sort of more of that perfectionist mindset and you really struggle with that? Or are you like, nah, fuck it, let's just go for it and open the doors? Like, how did you feel about that? You know what? I am I am definitely a perfectionist, and mm. that was really hard for me. I, I think, and you're right. I mean, that's probably one of my biggest learnings over the last mm. eight years. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was really, I like to have everything planned. I like yep. to have it all buttoned up before yep. we move forward. And yeah, just not possible Yeah, um, when you're an entrepreneur or when you're starting a business or when you're in business, you know, yep. you, you have to, you know, take the step forward with only, you know, hopefully you have 60, 70, 80% of the information that you need, but mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you just got to go with your gut and go with yeah. it and navigate through. The food and beverage industry is pretty unique and different in some ways. Like you look at a lot of the content and information that's out there on entrepreneurship and it's like fail forward, fail fast, you know, iterate, get back out to market, get that customer feedback, iterate, get back out. And, you know, it's that constant loop and cycle to sort of um, perfect something. 
Now, you can do that with some things in Food and Bev, but ultimately you want to be putting out a really good and consistent product right from day one. Otherwise, you're never going to get a second chance. So like I can imagine like all of your beers and beverages and even the food that was plated up and served over, you know, through the past would have just been perfect from day one. But what were sort of the, some of the things that you did get out into the world that weren't quite perfect that you iterated on and, you know, took a couple of kicks at the can before you got it right? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the interesting thing too in, in in the craft beer world because there is a lot of forgiveness and there's a lot of experimentation, you know? Really? So that was a big, cool. you know, yeah. And, and, and that was a big shift for us going mm. from craft beer, you know, even into RTDs, but especially into non-alcoholic beer where yeah. we're making a product and it really, you know, is a CPG product and, mm. you know, it's quite a bit different than than craft beer, you know? And so- there is a there needed to be a complete sort of mind shift, I guess, in in our culture and how we operated when we started doing the non-alcoholic beer because we, yeah, exactly that. We couldn't afford to experiment, you know, and, and put something out and have it fail and mm. you know put out another seasonal and put out another seasonal. Um <clears throat> so, you know, that's one that really took us a long time, you know, and, and we started in 2018 really you know doing the research and development for a non-alcoholic craft beer and it took us about two years of you know researching trying different methods building out a different process uh, to make non-alcoholic beer and then you know we put out a couple of different iterations mm. uh before before libra came out in, in 2020. And did you, um, you know, have a small um, sample of people that you would, um, you know, sample the product with and get that sort of market research feedback so that you could do some work behind the scenes? Like how big was the the set of, um, I guess, the data set that you were sort of working with or was it sort of off the cuff and you were sort of just sort of keeping it all up here or were you, you know, putting a pen to paper or how did sort of the back end look there? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it was... Um super scientific yeah so to speak but you know i mean it was really interesting for us because we because we had a tap room uh you know a couple of tap rooms here in charlottetown yeah that was really a great space for us to try yeah and and to gather feedback so yeah. um you know so we would you know i mean we would start with kind of tabletop uh recipes and and try it with the staff and dial it in dial it in you know and then once we thought you know, we had a, a recipe that was good, then we would scale it up and do, you know, a single batch and and release it in the tap room, you know, and what we would do is just put a QR code on the can and get people to scan it and provide their feedback. And, oh. you know, we would also have like the bartenders, you know, give out samples of it to people mm -hmm. coming in mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and get their feedback anecdotally and they would copy it down and provide it to us. So, you know, I think it was, uh, was actually one of our, our staff parties where you know we really knew that we were onto something because we took a, a keg of non-alcoholic beer and stuck it in with all the kegs of regular beer and didn't tell anyone and uh you know during the staff party at some point it got put on tap and it was one of the first kegs to go so we were wow like, okay. how's everyone behaving <laughs> there was a lull in the in the party. was there a lull i was gonna <laughs> say is it like the placebo like we a placebo with like, this is fucking yeah. wild yeah yeah <laughs> I love that. That's cool. Um, I've got another question just to sort of go back to your MBA days. <clears throat> Looking back, do you think it was critical that you did that course? Like, did you need it 
for the skill sets that you were able to require to be able to get this business operating? Or do you think that you could have made it work without it? Um, you know, I mean, I realized after my first business that I opened, because I remember opening, you know, that, that first business, the recruitment business and, you know, thinking to myself, you know, how hard can it be? You know, lots mm -hmm. of people own businesses and, and really getting in and, and realizing, you know, shoot, I don't really know what I'm doing here and, you know, kind of muddling through. And that's when I decided to go back and do my MBA. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think for someone who had like zero business experience before and hadn't had any sort of education in it, um, it really helped me understand how the business world works. But, yeah. you know, I think the thing with, with, with an MBA is that it's really geared towards big companies. You know, I mean, I took an entrepreneurship class, hmm. um, you know, but from the content was really focused on, you know, if you're working in a corporation, I was going to say CEO that or yeah. VP, you know, it yeah. really wasn't like, you know, you're going to have to get down and scrub the floors today. And yeah. then you're going to have to, you know, fill kegs and then you're going to have to go sell them. And then you're going to have to deal with an HR issue. And yeah, you know, um, yeah. so, I mean, it was helpful, I think, from a, from a strategy point of view. Um, it was helpful from an understanding the business environment point of view, but in terms of like the day-to-day -day of, of a startup, you know, I mean, yeah, there's nothing that could prepare you for that except yeah. doing it, you know? Yeah. 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 I agree. Um, yeah. Like it's sort of the way that I look at an MBA or any of those courses is like you suggested, if you're already working within like a, a corporation and you want to use it as a stepping stone for a promotion or something like that, it's like a must have in a lot of cases. And uh, yeah. And I look back on my course and I'm really grateful that I did it. Like it sort of gave me the ability to speak the language of all of the different sort of components of a business to some degree. And, um, and, you know, that level of business acumen to be able to at least be able to follow my nose. Um, but yeah, when you're out in the real world, I think that's when the lessons are really taught. And, you know, that's when you realize just like everybody says, no matter what they're doing, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, you know, that's when the lessons are sort of really ingrained in you. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's cool. Mate, I can imagine that, as you said, right at the very start, like when you got the business up and running off the ground, you know, there's the friends and family sort of round. And, you know, money coming out of your pocket to get something off the ground. And then hopefully you start to get a bit of cash flow and you can get it to a point where the business is starting to be able to support itself. And then the burn is quite hard, I'd imagine, uh, out of on your pocket. And uh, I can imagine that you would need some significant funding. So talk us through sort of like those early stages of the financial impact of the business and, uh, and to get it to this point now and sort of why you're at a point right now where you're looking for some um, further funding. It's interesting because I, I feel like I haven't fully understood cash flow mm -hmm. um, until the last two years. Yeah. You know, so even in the, in the early days when we started, so, you know, Mike and I kind of, you know, put in all of our money. Uh, we were able to leverage some government programs. Oh, cool. Yeah. And get financing to build the brewery. Um, you know, and I mean, it was critical for us, you know, because PEI is a very seasonal destination it was critical for us to be open for the summer because we needed the cash in the summer to get us through the winter when when things are slow the thing we had going for us um you know because in, initially we really had intended it to be a production brewery and and you know 
we were going to open up the tap room, but we thought it would just be, you know, a place for our friends to come and hang out. But mm -hmm. all, as soon as it opened, the tap room became really busy. And so that was able to provide us with kind of the day-to-day -day cash yeah. um, to sort of float us, float us through. Um, and we were able, you know, I mean, we were able to do that, you know, for the first, I would say like four or five years. And then it was really sort of, um, I mean, through COVID, you know, mm -hmm. when, um, when we were having all the closures and we lost all of our restaurant business and, you know, the, um, the tap rooms were closed down and we had to pivot to online sales yeah. and, and really sort of shift. And we kind of navigated through that. Um, but you know, we became a lot more cognizant during that time of, of cash flow and, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I guess managing our finances really, really, really closely. Um, you know, but I mean, coming out of that too, you know, that was really, um, you know, I think is what accelerated the, the launch of, of Libra where we recognize mm -hmm. that, you know, we've lost this chunk of our business. We really need to kind of push the innovation and, mm -hmm. um, move some of these things forward much, much faster than we had originally wanted to, um, you know, and, and really now it's been in the last couple of years as we've, <clears throat> started to scale Libra and Libra is growing uh, really quickly that we've sort of recognized the impact that very quick growth has on, on your cash flow. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, so, you know, we've more recently split Libra off into its own company as of, as of December. And then with right. the intention of going out and raising money to fund, uh, to fund just Libra. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because that's the first time I've ever gone out to to raise money. So that's yeah. you know, it's a whole new world. What have you learned? What have I learned? Um ooh, what have I learned? I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about myself, you know. I mean, we yeah, talked cool. about sales earlier, and you yeah. know, I would say in general, um selling isn't something that I have like in the past felt really comfortable with. Mm. Um, but I've gotten, you know much better at it. Um, I would say really good at it. You know, I mean, the interesting thing about when you're going out and raising money is that you're not really selling a product, you're basically selling yourself. So it feels a lot yeah. more personal. Yeah. You know, but I think, you know, the conversations that we've had, the interests that we've had have have really been validating, um, you know, for for the product. I think, you know, we talked also about that whole perfectionist piece. And I, you know, I I I really, you know, I spent a long time before we went out and starting started to raise the money, trying to make sure that, you know, we had our eyes dotted and our T's crossed and everything was sort of perfect so that we had the perfect pitch and the perfect, you know, and I mean, you know, the first pitch we did, it all kind of went out the window and it's been evolving ever since then, yeah. um, which has been really interesting. And, and I've just become really um, sort of settled in that ambiguity. So it has really been another great experience for me to sort of let go of this idea of something being perfect and, and really just rolling with it. Has your pitch deck got shorter and shorter every time you go out there and, and have a conversation with somebody or have you found it to, you know, remain pretty um, similar to where you started? Uh, it's definitely evolved a mm. lot um, from when we started. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Mate, um, 
I feel like you're at a point right now where you're like just through the conversation that we're having right now that you're in a comfortable space within the business, but you can see there's a huge, you know, opportunity for Libra within the market Canada wide just, and I'm basing that on the conversation that you and I had at CHFA as well. Um, and it must be really exciting to sort of like split the business off from Upstreet and it's its own entity now and you can sort of like really sink your teeth into it. You've got a beautiful brand that you've built around it. Like there's no doubt about it. And I've got the link down in um, the show notes for everybody to go and check that out. I'll include the Upstreet link as well. Um, so everyone can sort of see the two brands that you've developed. But when you're developing a brand and, you know, you've got an idea of who it is that's going to be consuming your product and that you're building the product around, <clears throat> Is it kind of difficult to build a brand for a, a beer business? Because like there's just, it's a huge industry and, you know, you look at the craft industry especially and, you know, it's pretty niche and you've got a huge assortment of different brands and, um, you know, um, uh, what would you call it? Like personas around those brands. But how did you come to a point where you built a brand around Libra that can sort of, um, uh, that can work as a, a launching pad for the future that you've got intended for the business? Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, for us, you know, it was really important. Number one, that we that we made a great tasting product, and mm. and that was really where um, we started. You know, we really wanted to create a product that you know people would drink and enjoy, and yeah. you know, would compete with its alcoholic counterpart, yeah. not just compete with other non-alcoholic uh, beers. But then, you know, the second piece for us was. You know, when we looked at who was consuming non-alcoholic beers and it being more millennial and Gen Zs, and, and this really kind of came from my own experience as well, you know, because I guess kind of after being in the in the beer business for a couple of years, I was, you know, I gained, you know, 40 or 50 pounds. Mm. Um, there always seemed to be an excuse to have a beer. Or a um, second or two. Or a second or yeah. a third, you know, yeah. and, and you know, people wanted to meet over beers and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and. <clears throat> So, you know, I set a goal to lose 40 pounds. And part of that was like, okay, you know what? I need to cut back on craft beer and cut, you know, which led to me cutting out alcohol um, for a period and, you know, still wanted to go out and have that same social experience and, and hated going out and getting a glass of water or getting, you know, a soda water and, and people being like, oh, you're, you're not drinking tonight or mm -hmm. how come you're not having a beer, you know, and, and feeling yeah. like I'm not being included in that social experience or ritual. And so, you know, when we got to doing the the branding of Libra, we really wanted to create, you know, a brand that didn't wave a silver flag, so mm. to speak, you know, that mm -hmm. people would feel really confident bringing to a party or ordering at a bar, you know, and would be able to feel like they're included in that social experience, you know, and, and be able, you know, and, and, and be excited to talk about it and tell other people about it. And so, you know, Libra, you know, means balance in, in Latin. And that's really, you know, what our whole ethos is, is to help people find their balance, you know, and we're not preaching sobriety. We're, we're you know, we're, I guess, talking about moderation, you know, mm. and, and um, you know, and so that's really where the, um, the crux of the, the brand came from and, and, mm -hmm. and grew from there. It's interesting, like coming from the coffee world, you've got your decaf coffee, you know, you've got sugar substitutes, you've got like a, a substitute for almost everything out there now, you know, uh, it's less evil brother, you could say, or something like that. But there's always a sacrifice on flavor, in my opinion. 
Um, but when I tasted your beers, I got to say, like it tasted just like a real beer. And the one that you gave me and that I took home um, from the CHFA, I threw it in the fridge. And then because I cook dinner most nights uh, if I can, and uh, and I'd love to have a beer, but just having that beer and then, you know, going through the routine of, you know, getting the kids in the bath and, you know, ready for bed and all that after a beer, I just don't enjoy it. I feel a bit twisted up. And so when I had your beer, I didn't have the impact of having a beer on me and I really enjoyed that, but I still felt as if I enjoyed a beer while I was cooking dinner and that was the value for me and I really enjoyed that. So I can totally see it. And the other thing as well, the first time I came across a um, – a non-alcoholic beer was when Rogan had the guys from Joe beef on from Montreal. And they were talking about how they used to be really heavy drinkers and they cut back significantly. And they were drinking, I think it was the Heineken um, alcohol-free Heineken and that it just tastes like exactly like a Heineken. So I bought a six pack of Heineken um, and from the grocery store and really enjoyed that. And that was sort of when it came onto my radar. And so, yeah, the market's got to be growing. Like when you were doing sort of the market analysis, like it was obviously significant, but what was sort of the real cherry on top for you guys to go, yeah, let's double down on this investment here? You know, I mean, I, I think we were, you know, I mean, we obviously the the research showed that this was growing and, it, mm. you know, um, you know, in Europe, there's a really well-developed non-alcoholic uh, beer market. Is there really? Yeah. 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 Like I think, you know, don't quote me on these stats, but it's, yeah. You know, in, in countries like Spain, I think 12% of beer sales are non-alcoholic beers. That's really so like significant. restaurants yeah. have a non-alcoholic beer on tap. Like yeah. it's it's uh, it's much more developed. And we've seen that it was starting to grow in uh, in the US. And so, you know, we were doing the market research and, and really it was our own experience. And, you know, we knew that, you know, millennials and Gen Zs were drinking less, but, you know, it was really looking around <clears throat> our own team at, at Upstreet, you know, and everyone had started working in the brewery when, you know, they were in their late twenties, early thirties. And, you know, we were having staff parties and going out together and doing, you know, all of the things. And over time, that sort of, you know, those like after work beers turned into after work runs and mm -hmm. staff parties turned into pancake breakfasts and everyone was starting to drink less. And, yeah. you know, we were kind of looking around and saying, geez, it's even happening to our staff, yeah, you know, people are just wanting to to drink less. And when we started putting out, we've seen such a shift. Actually, it's it's crazy over the last few years in people's perception of non-alcoholic products. Because even when we started putting out some of those early pilot batches, you know, there was a real sort of perception, and people would say, "Oh, isn't you know, that's nice that you're you know creating a product for people who can't drink and sort you know, of accommodating people, for people." Yeah, yeah, you know, but like very quickly over time, you know, people would like you could see the mentality shift and, and it really shifted from one of like abstaining from alcohol altogether mm. to one of moderating alcohol consumption. So people mm -hmm. would come into the tap room, they would sit down, you know, after work and maybe have a beer and then they'd have a couple of non-alcoholic beers because mm -hmm. they wanted to go to the gym or they had to drive home or, mm -hmm. you know, people were coming in and buying a four pack of IPAs and a four pack of non-alcoholic beers. And so, you know, I think those um, things really, help validate you know the um the direction that that we were taking mm -hmm. no that's amazing and you've won quite a few awards around your products as well at libra and uh, i'd love to sort of hear you know the value of participating in uh you know putting your beer out to the competition and uh and winning awards obviously and what value that's uh, brought to your business and the recognition of the quality that you've got 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, certainly you said it, it, it provides validation. I mean, it's easy mm-hmm. for us to go in and say that, you know, we're the best tasting non-alcoholic uh, yeah. uh, craft beer around, but, yeah. you know, winning world beer awards or any sort of international beer competitions really sort of lend credibility to, to what mm-hmm. you're saying and, and help make that uh, sale that much easier. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's become, you know, uh, you know, certainly a, a, a piece of our, our marketing strategy for sure. Yeah. Not only for consumers, but when you're out there pitching for finance, like I can imagine that that would be a real badge of honor to sort of wear and say, Hey, listen, like this is something that's proven that it's not just a concept. And, uh, you know, it's something that actually like, you know, like we said before, it validates the idea and the product itself. So yeah. Have you found that that has assisted through the process of pitching the business? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, because I, Again, you know, it's, you know, I think people are hearing about uh, the growth of non-alcoholic beverages and, you know, and, and so they know about it, but they don't really understand the market and, you know, and they know that there's other products out there. And so, you know, it's like, how are you differentiating your product? And, mm. you know, it's, it's hard to say taste because everyone says taste, mm. you know, but, you know, this really lends that credibility to say, mm. Yeah, it is. It is the taste. You're not just saying that we've got, Mm -hmm. you know, 12 international beer awards to back it up. That's unreal. When you're out there and you're pitching around a board table, do you actually take some cold beers out there and, you know, give everybody a glass or how does that look? Well, you know, what's interesting. I mean, a lot of the pitches that we've done um, have been on Zoom, Um, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's that's one of the things I think from COVID that's never going to go away. (laughs) And and, I mean, it feels strange a little bit to even do an in-person pitch anymore um but you know yes i mean we we absolutely send samples to to Mm -hmm. everyone that we Mm -hmm. pitch to and and certainly have them uh, available when we have in-person meetings and yeah yeah very cool mate got a couple of sort of more personal questions regarding the fact that you're the co-founder and the ceo of the business um we've obviously touched on the businesses that you've started um already and sort of i feel as if we've got a really good feel for that in the future that you're taking it but if you had the opportunity to go back to now uh, back to before you started with uh both businesses with the knowledge that you have now what business advice would you go back and give yourself i think the business advice that i would give myself is to take care of yourself physically like emotionally physically emotionally mentally yeah Yeah. i think you know like you are your your biggest asset you are your biggest edge you know and there's a real mentality in entrepreneurship or in in leadership you know that that leaders eat last you know you need to be the first one to work you need to be the last one to leave you need to you know set that you know and and set that standard and and you know it it takes a toll um physically mentally emotionally um you know and i and i think it's a really outdated flawed idea uh one because if you're the first one in and you're the last one to leave then everyone is trying to follow you so you're burning yourself out and you're burning everyone else out who's trying to keep up with you but you can't function if you're if you're burnt out if you're not physically fit if you're not mentally fit you know and that was a real realization for me um kind of at at the onset of of covid i guess you know kind of i mean i guess earlier than that i was really starting to focus on my health and wellness but i i remember you know when when covid first hit and 
you know, thinking like, okay, you know, how am I going to navigate through this? And, and just realizing that like, I am my best asset here and I need to be mentally sharp. I need to be emotionally stable. I need to be physically ready to, to tackle this and really doubling down on, on myself and working on myself, which mm -hmm. has had like tremendous, um, you know, implications for how I manage teams and, and how I run, run the business. So mm -hmm. I think that's definitely what I would have told myself. That's great advice. COVID seemed to have the impact of either making or breaking people or making or breaking businesses. Like we, like we saw a lot of our clients have to close their doors because they just didn't or weren't able or couldn't find a way through it. And then you had other businesses who have absolutely taken off because they found a way through it just by a necessity, but they were also obviously able to sort of keep focused and, you know, um, understand that, you know, there is a way through it. And even though it's going to be tough, it's only going to make the business stronger. Like cream rises to the top is a good saying, I guess. Yeah. And same physically and emotionally, like people have either crumbled throughout COVID and you just know that the lockdowns had a, a horrendous sort of impact on people's mental health and so on. And, you know, um, there have been numerous sort of impacts of COVID. And then you've got other people who are in the best shape of their lives you know, never been better, never been stronger emotionally, physically. So yeah, it could either go one way or the other. And it's really cool to hear that not only yourself, but also the business came out the other side a lot stronger, like sharp iron sharpens iron, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Anything else that you'd tell yourself? Um, anything else that I would tell myself, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, and I guess we've talked about this, this already, but kind of circling back again to, you know, the whole idea of perfection and having everything mm. um, perfectly set up and, and ready to go. Um, yep. You know, you're never going to be able to, to plan for what's going to happen. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, the people who try and wait until everything is perfect are the people who are going to fail, mm -hmm. um, you know, more than likely. Um, you know, you really have to, you can't wait. You can't wait until you have all of the information. You can't wait until everything is perfect. You yeah. have to go, Yeah. Um, you know? And, and so, you know, I think that's definitely. Mate, there's a saying like there are the dreamers and there are the doers. You're obviously a doer, but you're also a dreamer because you've got the vision, but then you put it into action. Is that inherent in your nature? Or is that something you've had to sort of like, you know, sharpen over time as well? No, it's definitely something I've had to sharpen over time because I'm definitely a dreamer. Okay. Um, you know, but I, you know, I think that there's, there is a, like I, you know, mentioned it earlier, there, there is that point of no return, right. Mm -hmm. Where, um, you're dreaming, you know, I mean, I dream about all kinds of stuff, but then, you know, there'll be a dream or an idea and it'll, it'll stick. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll zero in on that and, and make it happen. So, yeah. Yeah. When you're dreaming, is it something that you like, is it time that you set aside or is it just where you're driving or where you're eating breakfast or you're out on a run? Like, when do you have your best ideas and sort of like, what does that sort of dreaming component look like? Yeah, I, it really is. I mean, it certainly, um, you know, I, I'd say my best thinking time is either when I'm in the gym or when I'm mm -hmm. out walking or running or, yeah. you know, being active. Physical. Yeah. A lot of people say Physical that. Physical activity. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, yeah. things just come 
all the time. Answers come. Yeah. And it's great. You know, I mean, a lot of time thinking too. I mean, that's, that's really one of the hard things I struggle with is like setting aside the time to think, you know, because it feels like wasted time because you're not doing Mm. busy work, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, but it's so important, um, you know, to, to take the time and, and, you know, I get into these, um, sort of periods where you're just grinding and grinding and grinding and then you're frustrated because you're not having the ideas or you're not seeing things clearly and then you know you just need to sort of take that time away Mm -hmm. um you know away from the office away from your desk whether it's you know physical activity or um sitting and and having a coffee or um, you know, a lot of, you know, I do a lot of thinking in the morning when I yep. get up and sit yep. and have a coffee and sort of plan out my day and think, start thinking about things. And yeah. And when you are planning out your day, um, do you go, all right, let's try and figure out what's going to give me the best movement in the forward direction. Like what are the the biggest chunks that I need to work on today? That'll make the biggest impact or how do you sort of plan out your day? Yeah. So I, I mean, I, you know, I, I usually do it in the morning. Um, you know, I, I mean, I get up in the morning and I have a bit of a morning routine with some, some meditation and cool. and yeah. stretching and things. And then, you know, I get a coffee and I, I sit, um, and, you know, I started, you know, writing on a sheet of paper, you know, kind of like a brain dump, some notes. Yeah. And then, you know, out of that, what are your three priorities for the day yeah. and what are your other tasks? And, yeah. um, you know, that, I mean, that's been incredibly helpful uh, yeah. for me to keep me on task. And if I don't do that in the morning, I just feel like my wheels are spinning all over the, you know, I'm just getting dragged into everything mm-hmm. and and I'm completely unfocused. So yeah, it was like, yeah. I feel the same way every day at four o'clock. I've got half an hour before I need to shoot out the door. Cause I, you know, I knock off at four 30 and then I'm home and then home life with the kids is mental, right? It's like so much fun, but it's like, it's not my time. It's, you know, me investing time in the kids and our relationships and so on. So I've got to get everything done between the hour or between the half an hour of four and four 30. So I set up my next day on my notepad. I highlight everything that's a priority and that really helps me. So when I come in first thing in the morning, everything's set up and ready to roll. But I want to circle back on what we were saying about the difference between dreaming and doing, and the fact that you're a doer, like you've got the capability to have an idea and you've proven to yourself time and time again that you can turn it into a tangible reality which is huge and that's the difference between i think somebody who has an idea and they will carry it for the rest of their lives and somebody who actually gets a business off the ground and operational if you were to if somebody was to come up to you and say hey i've got this idea and i've been sitting on it for years what do I do? Like, what is it? What's the, what's that sort of like moment where you go, all right, step one is this step two is this. And I'm going to just like follow my nose. Like, what is it that like is the differentiator for you? What is it that puts things into action for you? Like, how do you do that? You you know, for me, it's writing it down. Just, yeah. You know, like I have a million ideas, but it just Mm -hmm. feels like as soon as you put it down on paper and start to you know, build it out, then all of a sudden that's like a step closer to reality, you know, and, and you can kind of flush it out, um, you know, and then, and then from there, just start moving forward. You know, I think again, you know, just taking small steps, I think, you know, the biggest issue that people 
run into when they have an idea is that, you know, at the beginning of anything, it's so overwhelming mm. how many things, you know, have to come into place that you don't even know where to start. Yeah. You know, and I think it's just a matter of like getting it down, getting it out of your head, you know, and then just, you know, taking bite-sized chunks and uh, moving things forward. That's cool. Yeah, no, I that sounds about right to me. Like, yeah, like there's a saying out there and I've said it on the podcast before and I, I didn't say it right and I laughed about it, but it was like you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Like that's yeah. all you can do, just like one little chunk at a time. And uh, and that's right because like, you know, a business is a serious endeavor and launching a product is a serious endeavor, but it takes a serious amount of commitment and resources and time and energy and so on. And, and yeah, it does look absolutely overwhelming. But if you just take that first step, like you said, and just commit it to, you know, writing it down, picking up the phone, making those initial phone calls, getting the right team of people around you and, uh, you know, starting to do that research. But then I think a lot of people get caught up in that research phase as well of like, you know, overanalyzing and overthinking things too. And I guess that's where that being okay with imperfection sort of like comes into it and, you know, getting, getting started without everything being perfect. So mate, I, I feel that you've kind of like got the right personality to be doing this job. You've sort of, you've landed on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, that's cool. Mate, um, thank you so much for your time today. I do have one more question. Sure. And I asked this question uh, to all of my guests. So if we were to fast forward a year from now and you could say to me that you've had your best year ever, what would you have accomplished? Um, you know, I mean, we, we will have completed uh, our raise with, uh, with Libra and built out our team and, you know, we'll be continuing on our, our growth trajectory. Um, you know, we'll have doubled our sales this year. Uh, over last year and mm -hmm. yeah and 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 have really you know will have started to build a, a strong uh culture i think within our team that's exciting mate anything on the personal front as well no <laughs> well i guess <laughs> you know I, I think for me you know it's, it's just you know especially sort of navigating through um this growth with libra um, you know, and, and my role sort of shifting back into startup mode again mm. is just to continue to, uh, you know, to, to maintain my physical, mental, mm. uh, health and, you know, really, uh, stay dialed in to that as well. And, yeah. and, you know, not be you a know, fine balance, find my balance, you know, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's our, you know sort of our purpose at, uh, at Libra and, you know, on a personal level, it, it really is to, to just maintain balance. That's cool. Well, mate, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, for everybody listening, there is, uh, a, um, a promo code down in the show notes. So thank you very much for the generosity on that one, Mitch. And, uh, yeah, I encourage you all to try Mitch's product here. It's delicious. And, uh, Mitch, where can people buy it out here in BC? Do you have so distribution out here yet? We do have some distribution. Um, we are in about 50 stores, but they're mostly kind of independent stores, but uh, uh, Choices, uh, yep. Nesters, okay. um, you know, and then and then a lot of kind of local uh, independent or natural grocery stores out there. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you very much. Mate, um, if anybody wanted to get in touch, what's the best way to go about it? Um, yeah, you can reach me on uh, on LinkedIn for sure. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I'll pop your LinkedIn profile down in the show notes for everyone else as well. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate it. Perfect. Thanks for having me on. It's been Have great. Bye. You too. Bye. 
All right. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode with Mitch Cobb. If you have any questions or comments, please visit my LinkedIn profile where I post up each week's episode. So everything you need can be found down in the show notes just by scrolling on down below where you can find all of the links. So thanks again for listening today. And I hope you join me back next week for another great episode. Cheers. Cheers.